particular truth. Um, if you're the first time here and, and you don't know much about us or you've been here for a little while and you want to know more about redemption or how you can get connected, best thing you can do is take the connect card that's in the seat back in front of you. Uh, take some time during the sermon and fill out your name, your email address, any questions that you have, particularly involving redemption, and then you can drop those off in the offering boxes, which are located in the back by the doors. We have an opportunity uh, to do that later. And then we'll be able to get back to you um, with any questions that, that you may or may not have. Now, one of the things that we do here as a part of Redemption is we have interviews where we begin to hear from people in the congregation about how God is moving in their life, particularly in their hobbies, their passions, or their vocations. It's our tangible way to express how we believe God is at work in every area of life. And so today we have the opportunity to hear from Elizabeth Corwin. So would you guys do me a favor and put together a warm welcome for Elizabeth as she comes on stage. <laughs> all right, so first of all, tell us what it is that you do for a living, or what is your occupation? Yeah, so besides being a student right now, I um, work in a restaurant called Keegan's at Ocotillo, and I'm a server. So from beginning to end, it's my job to create um, a pleasurable dining experience for you, bringing you any food, drink, uh, address any comments, questions, or concerns you may have. That's good. Hope to see you one day there. <laughs> so, I'm always there. Yeah. So. You're always there. All right, uh, we're going to stick to the script. Um, so the next question I have for you is uh, we're image bearers of God. So everybody here, everybody in the world, whether they believe in Jesus or not, we are image bearers of God. How do you particularly display uh, God's image in you and your particular vocation? So we know that God is a creator. He's a provider, and he uh, is above all a servant. So we learn in Mark that he came as a servant, not to be served, but to serve. So I get to reflect the image of God in my work by um, really uh, going to that lowly position of humility and uh, serving my customers in any way possible, also serving my fellow employees when they need help um, with their customers. Um, I get to provide um, resources, nourishment, food and drink that we all need um, and create that experience for everyone at work. Good. So in the beginning, God said it was good. He created everything and he said it was good, it was good. We read in Genesis 3 that sin entered the world. And so what we know is everything that we do has some level of brokenness in it. From the vantage points that you have being a server, um, what is the view that you have as it regards to the brokenness and the fallenness in our world? Mm, so I get to see um, the effects of the fall in my work um, by some of my customers when they come in, they're really exploring some of their vices, whether that's food or drink or um, pursuing other relationships that aren't their husbands or wives um, in our restaurant. Um, I've seen the brokenness and how sin has affected um, our bodies and our health, how temporary that is. I've had people um, have heart attacks at my tables before and different things like that. Um, and I really see the way that um, the um, Imago Day in each of us has been marred by the fall because there's always this sort of ugly tension between employees. Um, the whole joke of like sexual harassment being involved in the restaurant isn't a joke. It's prevalent. It's there every day. So that's something that we kind of have to combat and struggle with in the restaurant industry. That's pretty serious. Someone's had a heart attack at your place. Hopefully no one here goes to Keegan's, I think, to eat. Uh, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. So last question. God tells us to love our neighbor. And um, so when it comes to what you do, how do you love your neighbor? In what ways can you express love for your neighbor or serve for your, serving your neighbor? So like you said, Ricardo, um, God created work, and work is good. And just doing my job and doing it well is good, and that's loving my neighbor. And going a step further, um, I get to exude tough love um, 
in my job, whether that's cutting someone off after they've had too much to drink or providing them with alternative um, suggestions for something that may be healthier if they ask for that. Um, and then also when people enter into a vulnerable space of coming in to share a meal um, and ask me for help and to serve them, um, sometimes people invite me in into the conversations that they're having or I get to witness a lot of the brokenness and um, a way that I can love them is to be bold and to offer prayer or offer um, any resources or assistance I can give um, and take that next step to be there for them in more ways than just bringing the food to the table. That's good. Thanks a lot. All right. As always, what we'd like to do is not only commission Elizabeth, but anybody else that's in the restaurant industry, why don't you guys go ahead and raise your hand, and we'd love to pray for you. All right. We see you. We're going to pray for you um, and ask God to bless you and what you do. God, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your son Jesus and all that he's done for us, how he has come to serve us. God, we thank you for the many in this room, Lord, who serve in the restaurant industry, as well as Elizabeth. We ask that you'd commission them in the name of Christ and the power of Christ to do their work in such a way that brings honor and glory to you. Um, at the same time, uh, be able to be faithful, Lord, to the task that you've given them in their, their particular employment, God, that you would bless them, that you would guide them, and that you would lead, lead them. God, we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Will you guys thank Elizabeth again? Thank you. All right, we're going to continue in our study in the Gospel of Mark. We started this three weeks ago. So if you have, don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand and keep it raised really high? And if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1. Um, go ahead and keep your hand raised high. One of the ushers will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. As you turn there, just a kind of a quick recap. So we started this series, as I said, three weeks ago. The, we, we learned that the book of, of the Gospel of Mark was written by a man by the name of Mark. He wrote on behalf of the Apostle Peter. And the primary concern or theme in this letter is, excuse me, in this Gospel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is bringing and establishing his kingdom. The implication of that is what it looks like for men and women and children to be followers of this Christ within his kingdom. And so we saw how Jesus comes on the scene. He's baptized, and we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all in that same moment. Um, last week, we saw how Jesus said these words. Um, he said that the kingdom of God was at hand, and he was going to pre preach the kingdom of God, so therefore there was repentance and belief. When he began his ministry, and he began talking about the kingdom of God, the rest of everything that we're going to learn about in the gospel of Mark will be about expressing that kingdom and the reality of that kingdom that is breaking in but is not yet fully here until Christ comes and renew. So that means we live in this tension of what is often called as the already, the spirit of Christ is here, but the not yet, that there's still brokenness and decay and so forth. And so as we look at these stories of the kingdom, we'll begin to understand more about who Christ is. And so for the sake of structure, here's what we're going to go through this morning. We're going to look at, in, in terms of Jesus' power and his kingdom, we're going to look at his power to restore, his power to renew, and then also his power to redeem, to restore, to renew, and redeem. And so if you guys are with me in the Gospel of Mark, verse 21, we got a lot of scripture to cover this morning, all the way to verse 39. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man who, with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Uh, maybe you guys have seen uh, The Lion King, um, Disney gospel movie, okay? 
So in The Lion King, true story, I believe you get this. I think you get a picture, a, a picture of what we, what we talk about from Genesis Revelation. Here's what I mean. In the very beginning of The Lion King, what you see is things are the way that they're supposed to be. The king is on the throne. As soon as the king is dethroned, so to say, and their manipulation, there's a false king that gets up on there. You guys remember his name? His name was Scar, Satan, Scar, right? And so Scar gets on the throne, and then what do you have? What happens? The colors change. There's no flourishing. His little minions, the hyenas, they're all over the place running things, and life is terrible, and no one thinks it's going to be the way that it's supposed to be. But then there's rumors, and the rumors is Simba's alive, right? Remember the monkey? He's alive, right? <laughs> so you have, you have Simba's alive. And what happens after that is that Simba comes, he dethrones Scar, he's back on the throne, and life is flourishing again, and all the people, all the animals are actually the way that they're supposed to be, right? You have this picture. Well, when you see Genesis to Revelation, you see that Genesis 1 and 2, things were the way that they were supposed to be. We have Satan in himself in the form of a certain influencing, manipulating Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, what we have is the leaking into our creation of sin. God's otherwise good creation is now being tainted by sin. Sin is not just our moral uh, responsibility to do or not to do, but sin is more pervasive than that. It begins to affect and disrupt what the Bible talks about as shalom, which is wholeness and whole living. And so Cornelius Pantheger Jr. has this quote, I believe, that gives us a good understanding about the pervasiveness of sin. He says this, sin is a disruption of the created harmony and then the resistance to divine res restoration of that harmony. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively, because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Indeed, that's why God has laws against a good deal of sin. God is for shalom and therefore against sin. In fact, we may safely describe evil as any spoiling of shalom, whether physically, by disease, morally, spiritually, and otherwise. What we're going to talk about today, as Jesus begins and continues his ministry, as he begins to show this kingdom that can restore and that can renew and that can redeem through the casting out of demons, through healing, and ultimately redeeming people, that we see that God, through his kingdom, is giving us a foretaste, a sign of what the world will be like as soon as Christ is firmly positioned himself in this created world when he's back on the throne. And so as he begins this journey, the first thing that we're going to look at is the power of Jesus to restore. And so the context that we have here is Jesus enters into Capernaum. Capernaum was a place of the north shore of Galilee. And it says immediately on the Sabbath, he entered in the synagogue and was teaching. So let me give you some context here. The synagogue in itself were buildings where people worshiped at. And so in, in, in the Old Testament, after the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the people of God built a second temple. And then from that time all up until the time of Jesus, they built buildings wherever they will live called synagogues. And these buildings were not to replace the temple, meaning they still had to go to the temple for sacrifices and so forth. But the synagogues literally mean a gathering place, much like churches build buildings and for people to worship together. Now, within the synagogues, there were rulers of the synagogues. These were people who managed the day-to-day -day life of the synagogue, meaning they made sure that the place was clean, they made sure that the scripture was there so that whoever would come in and teach the scripture would be ready because the ruler of the synagogue didn't teach. It was up to the laity, meaning people would show up and there would be a scribe there and then he would begin to read the scripture and then expound from it, so teach from it. 
The scribes were men who were well taught and had learned all of the Torah. And if you can recall, the Torah just means law. It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That they knew it well. And so when they walked into the synagogue, they'd pick it up, they'd read it, and they would expound. These people called scribes were people of prestige in the Jewish culture. Meaning when, people, when they would walk in the room, people would stand up because they knew God's word and they can expound God's word, they can teach God's word, and they'd never heard teaching like it until Jesus showed up on the scene. So Jesus shows up the church and the synagogue, and what happens next begins to unfold the beginning of his ministry of the kingdom. It says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, it's not to say the scribes didn't have uh, ability to teach. They were good. It's not demeaning the scribes. It's just saying Jesus, when he spoke, it had a different weight, right? You, you, you know, it's, it's one thing to regurgitate from the particular source. It's another thing to literally be the source, right? It's one thing to say this is what God said and go, I'm God. This is what I'm saying, right? And so Jesus, when he spoke, it brought power and it had authority that when he spoke, things happened. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but power. And the same way that you see in the beginning of creation that God speaks and things from nothing become something. And the same way in the restoring of that creation that when God speaks, when the word of Christ is spoken, that God begins to move and do things in people's lives and in places. Well, here's what Jesus does, verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so just one thing to note here, that in church this morning, in this particular church, the synagogue, there's a demon possessed in a person, right? I'm not trying to say that any of you guys are possessed with a demon. I'm just saying in their church service, they had someone that was possessed by a demon, Jesus comes in and starts teaching. The demon begins to speak out of the man, all right? And, and he says, what do you have to do with this? All right, let me pause here for a second. First, so far in the narrative, in fact, all the way to the very end, there are two people who know who Jesus is. Mark, who's writing it, and the demons. Even the disciples don't even know that Jesus fully is the son of God. They're still questioning. But the demons know because they understand the spiritual reality. Let me just be honest. As soon as I start talking about demons, we don't know what to do with that half the time. We start thinking about demons, it's like, I don't know, if I can't see it, I don't, I don't, I don't believe it. I, that, that's a problem, right? And I believe that there's extremes when it comes to demons. So let me just talk about demons here for a little bit. When it comes to demons, demons, like Satan, were created by God. When Satan fell from heaven that we begin to read about, a third of, a third of the angels also fell with them. They're called demons. They're created spiritual beings that they themselves can leech themselves on a person, they can possess a person, they can oppress a person, and also systems and structures, and so what we have is that these realities is we may not be able to see a demon, but we can see effects of demon. Um, when you think about this, when you look at genocide, that's just not just inhumane. That, that, that to me is demonic. When you see the sex trafficking industry, you look at that and you go, that's, just, that's not just inhumane. That's, that, that could be demonic. The problem is we don't know half the time if it's demon or if it's a person, and so therefore we go to extremes. On one extreme, you have people who go, a demon's behind everything, right? That's a demon. Like the air conditioner went out. That's a demon. It's like, they didn't pay their bills, right? <laughs> On the extreme over here, more Bible-centered, doctrinal, theological, teach-through-books-of-the-Bible churches like ours, the tendency is to just make everything about personal responsibility. 
by, by no means to look at the Spirit. It's interesting, we start off believing in God, that the Spirit of God begins to reveal to us, and then we get to our word, and we mean more theology, more theology, more theology, that we leave anything spiritual, whether angelic or demonic, whether God or Satan, over here because we know more, and so we rest in knowledge and not in the truth of what the word of God actually teaches. Well, in first century, they didn't really separate them. They treated everything as the brokenness of sin. And then oftentimes, they would be able to see, like, that's just demonic. And so the question you should be asking is, as a Christian, can I be possessed by a demon? No, because the Spirit of God cannot reside in you as well as the Spirit of Satan. Fresh water and salt water cannot coexist. But can you be oppressed or influenced by, by a demon? Absolutely. And don't just think of it individually, you as a person. Think about the systems and the structures that we live in. Think about the things and how subtle it is. You've you got to realize, Satan's crafty. He, he's not just trying to scare you. Like, Hollywood has absolutely hosed us when it comes to thinking about this because we think Freddy Krueger is the demon. It's like, no, that, he's not a demon. He's an actor. They are real, real demons in this world. And so Jesus encounters one, and when they see Jesus, they get freaked out. They go, what are you doing here? I don't know how they talk. What are you doing here? <laughs> we know who you are. You're the son of God. And then what does Jesus do with this power and his authority to be able to restore? Here's what he says in verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And so you see, you see his power here. And when I say the restore, restore is putting something back the way it's supposed to be. So Jesus, in expressing his kingdom, he comes in the synagogue. He begins teaching. Everyone's like, that boy can preach. They're excited about, they're excited about the fact that he could teach. And his authority, when he speaks, things happen. A demon speaks out. He says, get out of him. And they're all looking at Jesus and going, he's restoring. Look at this man's power. And here's how they respond in verse 27. And they were all amazed. And they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread throughout all of Galilee and all the surrounding region. And so here's, here's what happens. Jesus comes in the synagogue. He preaches, things begin to happen, he's expressing his kingdom, his power and his desire to take broken things and put them the way they're supposed to be. He says, in my kingdom, there will not be people possessed by demons. Get out of them. In my kingdom, as he promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there would be one who would crush the head of Satan, which is a picture of how God was going to get rid of evil and all its evil structures. And he begins a sign of that and how that's beginning to happen. And all the people looked, and they were amazed. And notice what it says in verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. All instantly Jesus becomes famous. He's like, back then they didn't want me. Now I'm hot, they all on me, right? <laughs> Way before Mike Jones, right? So you have his power to be able to restore and to restore things back to the way it's supposed to be. But then the next, the next story, what we see is, as Mark Austin does, he goes from one story to the next. He jumps to the next story fast to show not just his power to restore, but his power to renew. Now, renew is when something has interrupted something to remove that interruption so things may go the way that they're supposed to go. And here's what he says in verse 29. And immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they took hold, told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So they leave, and now Jesus is back with the disciples, and he's with Simon. Now, Simon is also the apostle Peter. It's the same name. And so if you hear me say Simon, I'm saying Peter. If you hear me saying Peter, I'm saying Simon, right? 
And so he enters into Peter's house, and Peter says, my mother-in-law is sick. Now, you know Peter loves Jesus, because he could have said somebody else is sick. But he said, my mother-in-law, right? Not his mom, his wife. You know, some of us would be like, she cool. <laughs> right? So Peter goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my mother-in-law is sick, and she's got a fever. Now, the Bible doesn't let us know what type of fever that she has. It doesn't let us know if she's is really sick or deathly ill, but she has a fever nonetheless. Again, showing us that when we're sick, um, when we, think about this. So my oldest son struggles severely. Uh, he's allergic to grass, as I am. My allergic to grass plays way different than his. So Monday night, we have baseball practice, and we just want to hit, some, hit the balls in back of Jason Raber's house. There's nothing against Jason Raber, but it was his house. And so we're in the backyard, and then his neighbor's cutting his grass, and all of a sudden, that night and the next night, Noah could not breathe. And if, you, if you're a parent and your kid has asthma and allergies and they, they just can't breathe, you, you get scared. But there's, some of, there's part of you that goes, it's not supposed to be this way. Even a simple fever, it's not supposed to be that way. And Jesus begins to look at that and goes, I, I, I could renew that. Because that's what I'm ultimately going to do when I restore all things. And I can begin to show little pockets of what this restoration and what renewing looks like. And so Jesus enters in and begins to care about this woman. Another thing about this, about Jesus' kingdom, there's no such thing as small people or little people or insignificant places when it comes to Jesus. This is Peter's mother-in-law, right? When you're the God of this universe in flesh, there's so many things you can do, but yet he, he stops at a small house, in a small village, in a small town, to help a guy's mother-in-law, right? And here's what he does in verse 31. It says, and he came and he took her hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her, left her and she began to serve him. Meaning Jesus came in, looked at her, lifted her up, and as he lifted her up, she was fine. And what did she begin to do immediately? She began to serve him. Like immediately she said, I'm gonna serve you, which is an implication of discipleship. That Jesus himself later in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, will say, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come in this world to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. Meaning the essence of being a disciple or a follower of Jesus in his kingdom is serving. And when you've had an encounter with the gospel, when you've had an encounter with Jesus, the very next thing that you do is you take whatever talents, in this woman's case, her physical health, and now be able to serve God and serve others. And so when we think about our lives, we think about our talents, our resources, our vocations, everything that God has given us, if we are followers of Christ, that we use those things in such a way to be able to honor God and serve and love our neighbor. So Jesus does this. Now, what happens when you cast out a demon and people hear that you cast out demons and you heal people? Everybody else goes and gets their cousin or their friend or their uncle who has the same issues, and they bring them to him. And that's exactly what Jesus has here. In verse 32, it says, that evening, right, that evening, Jesus at sundown, um, it says, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And so you, you, you have Jesus going, I'm casting out a demon. I'm re renewing this woman back to her health. I'm casting out more demons. I'm healing more people. He's showing his just pockets of what he's going to do when he fully comes back and reigns and restores. Notice this. So far in the Gospel of Mark, he has not forgiven anybody of sins yet. That doesn't happen to next week's sermon. What, the reason I want to point that out is oftentimes when we think about the kingdom, 
We reduce it so much to our individual sin, and if we could just get right with Jesus and getting our sin forgiven, then we're okay. Therefore, not really understanding the magnitude of the kingdom. The kingdom is a forgiveness of sins. He has come to die to forgive us, but he's also come to provide the proper context for us to reign with him forever, and that is a new heavens and a new earth. And in doing that, removing the effects of sin in our life, the effects of sin in our world. And he begins to show this in his miracles. And so after he gets done casting out demons and healing people, uh, my, my assumption, I've never done all that, not in one day at least, is that he, he, he's, he's tired, but what does he do? He stills away to pray to his father. Verse 35, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus stood away and said, I'm going to pray. What I love about that is it's so different than us. He's saying, hey, don't tell people that I did this. He told the demons, I'm casting you out, don't say a word, right? And it's like, what is Jesus doing? I don't think, you know, I don't think Jesus is shy. I don't think Jesus is saying, I don't want people to know that I'm here to save the world. He does. But he wants to reveal it on his time. He doesn't want to make it completely just about him in a selfish way, but in the way in which his, his father ordained it. You see, we're, we're, we're using that like that. Jesus on one hand is saying, I just cast out a demon in your life. I just healed you. Don't go tell anybody. When we do something good, we say, hey, tell everybody, right? Post it on Facebook. Tell everybody what I did. Tag me in that mug, right? That, that, that's, what, that's what we usually do. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. He steals away, and he gets time with his father. And, and this is just an implication. This should be an easy one. If Jesus prayed, I think we should pray. I don't think I need an illustration or anything like that. You get it, right? If Jesus prayed to the Father, we should be praying to our Father and asking him to fill us. Well, another thing why Jesus didn't want people to go talk about him is because he knew that the way our hearts are, we do things to show off. And Jesus wasn't trying to market the kingdom. You ever think about that? Like, what were the purposes of Jesus' miracles? I, I used to always think the purpose of Jesus' miracles is he's got to prove that he's God. Boom, I'm God, right? Watch this. Well, he's just a glorified magician at that point. That wasn't, it wasn't proving that he was God. He was showing what the kingdom would be like. So if you looked at it, everywhere he went, if you think about a, a, a dirty, dirty window that you cannot see through because it's dirty, what he was doing, he was taking a clean rag, and he was putting a little hole through it so that we can see much clearer. And he was going somewhere else, and he needs to pull a little old hole in it with the promise to say, when I come back, I'm going to clean the whole thing. He, he was showing what the kingdom of God would be like and he wasn't, again, not trying to market himself. He wasn't trying to sell himself. He wasn't, wasn't trying to get as many followers as he, as he could on Twitter. I mean, he wasn't trying to do any of that. trying to get real followers. Go figure. And so he was, he, was trying, he was trying to establish his kingdom, not trying to sell himself, but trying to give himself away. But the disciples didn't get that. And you say, how do, why do you know that? Well, here's what they say in verse, uh, in verse 36. It says, And Simon and those who were with him searched him and said, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, that phrase, everyone is looking for you, is mentioned 10 other times in the Gospel of Mark. And every single time that it's mentioned, it's in a negative connotation. You know what it means? We're trying to control you. We want something from you. We don't really want you. Um, the disciples, we don't really want you, but we want you to do, I mean, you've been doing some pretty cool stuff. Can you come by again? This is what this is like, um, because we get this. We live in a world where relationships are not covenantal, they're consumerism. Like, covenantal is what marriage should be. I'm with you no matter what. That's it. Um, 
consumer relationship is, as long as you're producing the goods that I once have, I'm going to be with you. If I find another vendor, someone who has a better product for maybe cheaper, that's more convenient, I get a chance to leave you. And so in essence, covenantal love is truly relationship, and it's truly love because it's laying down your life for someone else. That the purpose of the relationship in itself, uh, of the covenant, is for the relationship. Where consumer is the purpose of the relationship is to get and to receive. If I can't get and receive or I can find it somewhere else, then I could leave. We get that. Because in our lives, we use people and people use us. We want things from others, others want things from us. And we've experienced that. We know the pain of that. Jesus understands their hearts. They want things from him. They want to see him put on the, they want to see him heal again. They want to see him do things. Listen, we got to go. But Jesus wasn't, wasn't there for that purpose. And again, we, we know what it's like to be used. And we look at our own spiritual life. Many of us treat Jesus like that. I believe in Jesus because he's done this, which is good, but not for the relationship, though. I don't believe in Jesus because I have not seen him do whatever it is. He's asking you first and foremost for the relationship in a covenantal way, not in a consumeristic way. And it's hard for us to understand that because even the ideal of a covenant becomes more and more increasingly more foreign in our particular life. And so when Jesus comes, he's, he's not just bringing the ability of himself and the power to restore things that are broken to right places, but he's also trying to renew. And so when he gets up from praying and they ask him these things, what is his words? He says, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. That the preaching that he talked about was a preaching that was in word and deed, meaning I'm continuing to renew. All the interruptions in your life that sin brings, I'm continuing to remove those things that you may be renewed. And it says this in verse 39, that he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So up until this part, so, point so far, we've seen his kingdom restores. He takes people who are possessed with demons and he puts them right to where they're supposed to be. He renews that he'd be able to heal feel, uh, fevers and diseases. And then he also is casting out more, more demons. He's re renewing. And lastly, probably my favorite story um, in the, all of the Gospel of Mark is how he cleanses the leper. And so he shows his power to redeem. Let me read this with you. In, uh, read this with me in verse 40 to 42. And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made well. Now, in that day, leprosy was about the, the worst disease that you could possibly get. Because like any any skin disease, it was not only contagious, but it was hard to diagnose and also hard to cure. And in fact, because it was so contagious that people had to be pushed outside and had to be disconnected from their regular life. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. In fact, in verse 13, we have what the law says here in 45 and 46. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And that was just not God's harsh punishment. It was saying, if you're around other people, they're going to get it. And there's no way for these people to cure it. And so people who had leprosy, they wore weird clothes. They had to let their hair down. They had to, when they were around people, they had to be at a distance. And they had to yell out, unclean, unclean. And unclean meant that you couldn't worship with people, you couldn't be around people, you couldn't go to birthday parties, you couldn't go out to eat, you could not be with people. 
And there was a stigma on that too. The stigma was that they are in the position that they are in because they did something and God is punishing them. That wasn't true. Sadly, many of us find ourselves there. It's amazing how many people I talk with that have gone through the terrible and painful experience of a miscarriage or something like that that have asked the question, is God punishing me? Let me tell you, God does punish. But to the life of a believer, he's already punished his son on your behalf. So God is not punishing you because of those things. I don't know what he's doing, but he's not punishing you. In the same way, he wasn't punishing the people that had leprosy. You see, not only were were they considered that they were cursed by God, that they couldn't talk to family. They lost their sense of identity. They lost their vocation. They lost their money. They, They lost everything. People couldn't talk and they couldn't be around them. Fathers lost children and husbands lost wives, etc., because of this particular disease. And I, I communicate that to let you know the audacity of this man to be able to go to Jesus. The audacity for him to completely defy this particular of scripture, what it says in Leviticus, to be able to be around people because he knew there is one here who has the ability to save me. Interesting enough, in the New Testament, the word save and heal are the same word. That oftentimes they go together, showing forth God's desire through salvation to both forgive sin as well as to heal, and ultimately one day we will realize uh, the fullness of what that means. And so he comes to Jesus, and he says what I think communicates a lot of our hearts. The leper came to him, verse 40, imploring him. That literally means begging him. Kneeling down and saying, if you will, you can make me clean. The word will means desire or want. He says, if you want to, you can make me clean. See, like us, I don't think he's questioning the ability of God, but questioning his desire, his heart. Do you want to? I, I don't think sometimes, all the times we question what God can, to, can do, does he want to? Even when it comes to his love for us. I mean, we know God can love us, but does he love me? Does he want to love me? And then what does Jesus do? The next thing it says that Jesus does, he says this in verse 41, move with pity or compassion, care, concern for this man. He stretched out his hand and he touched him. I want to pause there. He touched him. That seems insignificant, like, okay, he touched this man. But you and I both know what it's like to have something that is seemingly insignificant to everybody else in our world, but mean the world to us. When we first moved out of LA, we moved to the suburbs, I had no friends. I had no friends, um, I didn't know people, I didn't, I didn't know the rules or what you're supposed to do or not do. And you know, being a kid is hard when you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. And there was one particular person, his name was Ryan, and he was the cool kid, and he was on my football team because my mom signed me up for football. She goes, you'll meet friends by playing football. Not that I was gonna get the wind knocked out of me and beat up and all that stuff. It was like, go play football, right? Parents are different these days, but anyways, that's a whole other deal. So my, this guy, Ryan, is like the cool kid. I show up to practice, we, get our, we finally get our full pads on, that was a big deal, and I put my game jersey on. Now, I didn't know you weren't supposed to wear your game jersey to practice. I know they gave us two jerseys. One was a practice jersey, and one was a game jersey. Mind you, I'm eight, all right? And I said, that jersey looks better than that jersey. I'm gonna wear this one. And so I show up to practice, and the lady who ran the whole Pop Warner League that I lived in was walking around, and my buddy Ryan comes over to me. He wasn't my friend. I didn't really know he even noticed me. He goes, he goes, Ricardo, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. He goes, you're not supposed to wear your game jersey. You're going to get in trouble. Mind you, this is eight-year-olds talking. You're going to get in trouble. Look, there's that. I don't know her name. There's a lady. She's going to walk by. He grabs me, puts me behind him, and does this. <laughs> right? Like, shh. Right? <laughs> right? 
Now, that seems insignificant. But when you, uh, when you move into a new town, and you don't know anybody, and you don't know the rules, and there's somebody who reaches out to you, that means the world, right? That guy, Ryan, was the best man at my wedding and still my best friend to this day. Like, that mattered. When you're a person in this day and time who has leprosy, who hasn't been touched by anyone in years, no one's spoken to him with any sense of dignity, that when people looked at him, they, they, they kind of looked down upon him, like they didn't want him, people were afraid of him, they took their kids and say, get behind me, let's get away from you, but every single person that you were around was just kind of just getting, repelling away, and then finally, someone says, I will, he says, you can, and Jesus says, I will, I desire, I want to, I want to, and he could have just healed him, he could have just snapped his fingers, I think Jesus was being very intentional, he touched him and he healed him, he said, you were welcome in, that, that begins to be the heart of the gospel, you see, the redeem means to exchange. And that's exactly what's taking place here. Here's what I mean. If we continue to read in this story, verse, verse 43, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for uh, your cleansing what Moses commanded and proof of them, meaning the, the law. Jesus still cared about the law. He says, the law says, if you are healed of leprosy, go show yourself to the priest, and the priest would kind of look at your skin and say, you're good to go. You're welcome back into fellowship. You're welcome back to be with others. And he says, go do that. In verse 45, it says, and he went out, and he began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Here's what happened. Jesus says, now don't go tell anybody. And he's like, all right. Hey, <laughs> right, right? <laughs> He's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm telling everybody. So what happened there? There was an exchange. Jesus knew in touching this man, this man who was an outsider and couldn't be with others, Jesus knew in touching this man that he, he would now make him an insider, but Jesus himself would become an outsider. What begins just the foreshadowing of Jesus' ministry, a foreshadowing of the cross in itself. Because what we understand is that you and I, people like us, we are spiritual lepers. We are people who are separated. We are people who do not and cannot naturally worship God, that we cannot know him, that there's no way to make our hearts clean, no matter what we can do, that we are unclean because of our sin, and that Jesus himself comes, and he, he makes the exchange. He takes on our stigma, which is the penalty of sin, that we now receive what he's always had, and that is the love and the fellowship of the Father so that we may never be outsiders again to the love of God, but it's something that we freely receive by trusting in Jesus. It, not only is Mark just showing his power to restore and renew, but it's to redeem. It's exactly what Jesus came in this world to do. It's to redeem people. And might I add, as, in, in closing, when it comes to Jesus' ministry, nobody was left out. And when it comes to the ministry of the church, no one could be left out. Know what that means? That means that the single mom cannot be left out. The orphan cannot be left out. The homosexual cannot be left out. The rich, the poor cannot be left out. The Republican, the Democrat cannot be left out when it comes to who we choose to love. Because if we've been loved in the way that Jesus loved, that means we put ourselves in position to quote unquote get others on us that we may give ourselves to another. Because Jesus came to give himself to us and he put, took upon himself the penalty of our sin that we may go do likewise in his kingdom. Amen?
Let's pray. God, we thank you that when you put on flesh and your son Jesus, that you did not love at a distance, but you put yourself before demonic powers to destroy it and to get rid of it. You put yourself in the face of illness to relieve it and to heal. And Lord, you touch those of us, Lord, who were spiritually and physically unclean to give us true purity through the blood of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to yourself by your spirit, that we are no longer unclean because of anything that we've done, but we are made right and righteous because of all that you've done. God, we pray in our own ministry that we would not look at people or places to see, to see them as off limits, but people like us, Lord, who receive the love of God. So God, help us to tangibly display the good news of Jesus in our life in word and in deed. We thank you, Father, for the example in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the love that we have in Christ, for the forgiveness that we have in Christ, and for his kingdom that is leaking into our church and to our community and our city and our family, our friends, and the places that we work. We ask that you would get all the glory in Christ's name.